I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to, uh, to Isaiah. Isaiah. And, uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. In your copy of God's Word. I stole the title for this sermon from the hymn we just sang. Now, uh, I didn't ask Jim to lead us in that, that hymn, Come That Long Expected Jesus, but I'm glad, glad that he did. I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know we were going to sing it, but I had the, I wrote, so I printed the words out and taped them to my sermon <laughs> right there. And this is what you call, this is traditional copy and paste. <laughs> you copy it, and then you tape it in, or you paste it in. Uh, Either way, that's the way they did it back in the old days, in case you, these are young whippersnappers <laughs> knowing about it. Now, I stole the title from uh, Methodist Charles Wesley's uh, hymn, and uh, we sang that song, and it's a great song. Wesley in this hymn captures the paradox of what Christ was and what he became so that he could set his people free. He was a king. He was a god who became a child so he could be a lamb and die for his people. The first words of Wesley's hymn are, Come thou long-expected Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about for a little bit, the expected Jesus. Now the question is, was Jesus expected? Was Jesus expected? If you have your copy of God's Word, you can look at Isaiah chapter 7, and you can look at verse 14, and uh, in my Schofield Reference Bible, it dates this chapter at about 700 B.C., 700 B.C. So 700 years before Christ is born, we read this from Isaiah. Let's look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So Jesus was expected. The Messiah who is talked about here is longed for by the Jewish people over many centuries. And the Jewish people, they were promised the Messiah and these, this desire for a Messiah to come, this desire for a king to come and, and rule over them and help them and protect them. At the time of Isaiah maybe wasn't as important to them at the time because Isaiah is there when King Uzziah dies. King Uzziah was the most glorious king of Israel in their history, almost 60 years of rule, and Uzziah was a great man. But in the post-exile period, when Israel turns away from God and they go, into, they go, under, national, they go under judgment as a nation from God because of their idolatry, God crushes Israel. He destroys Israel. And, take, and they get deported from their land. They're taking captivity. And all those, uh, you know, Daniel, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and all those, little, all those little books in the Old Testament, the minor prophets. One of my deacons down in Texas told me that he called the minor prophets the doom and gloom preachers. Because <laughs> everything's so gloomy. Those are all in the exile period where they're, they're longing for Jesus to return. And the Jews, they were looking, for, not Jesus to return, they are looking for a Messiah, a chosen, anointed one. They were promised this person. They were promised an anointed king who would come back and restore their national presence, who would make them once again a great people. 
And it begins with Isaiah's prophecy here that there will be a special child. Notice the frustration. Will you try the patience of God also? You're, you're testing God with your disobedience? Well, he's going to send someone into the world who's going to change things. He's going to send a powerful person into the world. That's what Isaiah says. If you turn the page just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, you'll see again this prophecy of this special child who's going to be born. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you turn the page a little further, these are all the passages that the Jews, that they knew in Jesus' day about the prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 11. I'm sorry, Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then there's this interesting description of what this person's going to be like. This person's going to possess, notice verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This guy's going to be endued with the Holy Spirit. Notice the next phrase. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. If you want to make a note to yourself, write down the the passage, Revelation 19, verse 21. And then go look at that later on and see what that talks about. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This is the kind of Messiah that they're looking for. They're looking for someone to come and do these incredible things. Now, turn to Isaiah chapter 32 and listen to verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 4. See, a king will reign in righteousness. And rulers will rule with with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. And the ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the rash will know and understand. And the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will a fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. These are all prophecies talking about Jesus coming. Not, not Jesus. We've got to change the way we're thinking here. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, an anointed one to come into the world. And you may say, well, how do you know the Jews were looking for all those things? How do you know those passages actually refer to the Jewish perspective? Because sometimes we Christians, we tend to read our Christian viewpoint into the Old Testament. And this frustrates the Jewish people. Because like, what do you guys know about the Old Testament? You're Gentiles. We Jews, we know the truth. Every verse I just gave to you 
If you go to the JewishEncyclopedia.com, which the Jewish rabbis, I've talked to a couple of them in Oklahoma, they told me Jewish, the JewishEncyclopedia.com, they said, you can trust that. That's Jewish thinking right there. So I went to JewishEncyclopedia.com, I typed in Messiah, and I got all these passages from them talking about the Messiah. They, the Jewish people, they were looking for a Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah to come. They knew that he was to come. They even knew the Jewish people when Jesus did come, they even knew where he would become, where he would come. Remember Matthew where he'd be born at. Remember Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6? The wise men, they have seen this great star in the sky, and they come to Jerusalem. They, they've come to worship a king. They've come to meet a king. And so they come to the capital city of Israel, to Jerusalem. And there they, they meet Herod. And Herod says, what are you talking about, king? I don't know about this king. I'm the only king in town. I don't know what you're talking about. And they say, he gets the scribes, he gets the Pharisees, the wise men to come and say, what's, what's, what are these guys saying? And they say, well, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is going to be born. And so Herod says, you guys go worship him. And when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. But Herod, he's telling a lie, isn't he? He wants to kill this new king. You see, the Jews, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for one to come, but they did not expect the Messiah to be a person like Jesus was. They were expecting a different kind of person to do a different kind of thing. And here is where, what, here is where the expected one becomes the rejected one. Because the Jews, they believed that the Messiah would come and he would set up the great and glorious throne of David. That's what we read about in Isaiah. He's going to come and set up this throne. He's going to rule over the nations. He's going to be a branch out of the stump of David. Because the Jewish people, they had been cut down as a people. They don't exist as a people anymore. The great tribe of Judah is no longer exists. There's no longer any prominence to it. Just a stump is left. Have you ever cut down a tree? And then, you know, when springtime comes, there's a shoot shooting at the side of it, growing up. This is what this is the picture. There's going to be someone come out of that tree and who's going to grow out again and become the king. We know it's talking about Jesus, and this is what the Jews were thinking. This Messiah is going to come. But they thought he would come into the world, that he would be born as a baby, but that he would grow into a mighty warrior. And that he would reestablish the great and glorious throne of David, the warrior king. And that this new king, this new ruler, would lead forth a Jewish army where he would subjugate the world and rule forever. And Israel would be on top for all time. Now when Jesus comes into the world... Jesus looks like that kind of person. He appears to be such a person because Jesus, when he enters the world, he is very wise. Remember, at 12 years of age, he's down at the temple. He's talking with the Jewish scribes and leaders, and they're marveling over his wisdom. This guy, this kid is smart. And then as Jesus goes public in his 30s, the people are saying, where did this guy get all this knowledge? He's just a carpenter's kid. He shouldn't know all these things. But Jesus is very wise. Then after his baptism, Jesus starts to do supernatural things. He performs miracles. So everybody's excited. 
He's here. <laughs> the great king has arrived, man. The, the, the tide is turning, you know? But at the very apex of his popularity, Jesus says in John chapter 18, Jesus says to the disciples and to the other people, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, then my servants would fight. And then when the people, they, they, they want Jesus to be king. If they could choose their own king, they would choose him. And when they get together to make him king, what does Jesus do? The Bible says he hides from them. He slips away. As it does, and he does not allow them to make him king. You see, the Jewish people, when they thought of a savior, they were thinking about a Gideon who would come and throw off the Midianites. They were thinking about a Moses who would go in before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But what they got in Jesus, they didn't get a savior who was a a Gideon warrior. What they got was a lamb. And Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to bring a sinful people and a holy God together. Jesus was not only a lamb, he was a light. And he brought a light into a very dark world. It says that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. Jesus comes into the world and shines this great light. You may say, well, how dark was the world in which Jesus came? It was pretty dark pretty dark. A world so dark that they hated the light because it revealed their rotten condition. Rotten condition. Rotten condition. You guys ever been used car shopping in Michigan? <laughs> I've been on Facebook Marketplace, you know, looking at different cars because I, I had to buy I had to buy a car. I'm probably going to buy another car for long and I'm on Facebook Marketplace looking for a honey of a deal. That's the kind of deal you're looking for, is a honey of a deal. And I saw a car listed over in Harbor Springs, beautiful little Ford, kind of like a, whatever the newer version of the Taurus, Ford Taurus is, beautiful looking little car. Looks great. Pictures of the interior, magnificent. The price is a honey of a deal, $800. If you're like me, that's, that's almost your perfect price. The perfect price is zero. <laughs> uh, I one time was fortunate enough to buy a 1976 Chevy Impala for guess how much? One dollar. One dollar. And it ran. <laughs> Only had second gear, but you know, hey. It got me from A to B. <laughs> Just park carefully. You don't want to back up. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I thought, oh, wow, that's a good, this, is a, this is a deal. And so I click on it, read all the stuff, you know, leather interior. Miles are pretty low. I'm, I'm blown away at the price. And then it says, car unsafe to drive. <laughs> Frame totally rusted out. Oh, man. But, you know, sometimes you may go down, you're going to get a car, you take it down, you're gonna, and then you look at it more carefully. <laughs> what? A light has to reveal the condition. Jesus comes into the world and he is so glorious, so perfect in his humanity and behavior that he shines a light on the rotten condition of the world. Now remember, when Jesus comes into the world, Judaism was totally corrupt. Totally corrupt. 
Look at the conversations Jesus has with the Pharisees, and you can see it. Judaism was not what it had once been. And there was no Christianity in the world. Can you imagine a world with no Christianity? Christianity has affected the entire planet, as Jesus said it would. But a world without Christianity? In the Roman Empire, the religion of Rome was only paganism, idolatry of of various kinds. Morality in that era was so awful that the worst thing in the Roman Empire that a person could do socially, the worst thing that a person could do socially in the Roman Empire was to commit incest. Everything up to that was okay. Incest. Ancient Rome, Athens, and Corinth. Those cities were so wicked that they make the bawdiest spots of Las Vegas look like a meeting of the Lions Club. It was a wicked, wicked world. And into this dark world came Jesus, and he brought light. And this light, this glorious gospel light that Paul describes changed everything. If you want to mark this, Luke 13, verses 18 through 20, Jesus talks about the mustard seed that becomes a great tree. He talks about the the yeast that leavens the whole lump. Christianity has leavened the whole world. We don't really understand the deep impact of Christianity upon the world, but it's had a massive impact. A massive impact. Now we're starting to get into the wind down of that. Because the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he says this, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Question mark. As it were in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Those who believe in post-millennialism, or that we're going to usher in the millennium, that the gospel is going to subdue the whole world, are sadly mistaken. We're going to go out in the dark. A blazing light's going to return from heaven. It's going to be Jesus. He's going to call all of his people out. The living saints will rise to meet him. The dead saints will rise to meet him. I know as Christians, we're all, we're all burdened about the way the world is, aren't we? Burdened about the way our country is. It's a mess. It's a wreck. We say it's a great country, and it is a great country, but it has some real bad spots. It has some rotten elements to it. And we as Christians, we get so, we get so frustrated. Oh, the, world's going, you know, the world's going to pot. Well, the world has to go to pot. Jesus says that's how it's going to be. Now, why, why would it, this is not on my sermon, but I'm going to turn aside to this for a second. Why does it have to be that way? Why does the world have to go to pot before Jesus comes? Why do we have to endure this? Because you and I love this world too much. That's what I think. Jesus said, remember Paul says it in Colossians 3.1, we should set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. On things above, not on things... Set your affections intentionally, setting your affection on things above, not on... Whoa. (laughs) I almost ate it right there. Whoo. And that, I'm glad we don't live stream. <laughs> that a bit bad. i got to get away from that. I'll stand over here. We love this world so much. 
And we have to intentionally recalibrate our affections and set them above. One of the ways this happens is when our, the people we love pass away. Down south, when somebody passes away and they say, you know, Billy Bob died and he went to be with Jesus. Hashtag, heaven's sounding sweeter. And that's something they say, I don't know if they do that up here, but down south that's pretty common, is that heaven becomes more precious to us the more treasures that are up there. And the greatest treasures we have are those we love. And when they're up there, you kind of want to go be with them. You want to see them. Of course, Jesus, our Savior, is there too, right? We have to set our affections up there. The world we live in, it's going it's to get destroyed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone eventually. So we have to set our affections up there. Christianity has affected the world. But the world is going to turn down. Now let's get back to the sermon. Now this coming of Jesus into the world, this light that Isaiah talks about, this person who Jesus, who, who, who's going to come is Jesus, and Isaiah says he's going to come into the world and, and do great works. And we're all fairly familiar with the life of Christ, that he was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, he goes into Egypt, comes back and grows up in Nazareth, and then... After 30 years, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And then he begins his public ministry. He starts doing miracles. 30 years. Now, what you think about that number, 30 years? What, 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 is, what does that mean? Well, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a lot of fanfare around his birth. When Mary was told she was going to have a baby. Who came and told Mary, you're going to have a baby? Who's, who told her? An angel. How many of you have talked to an angel face-to-face? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Has it happened to me that I know of? If it's happened to you, don't tell me about it. <laughs> it was a lot. And then, when Mary finds out she's going to have a baby... Joseph also finds out she's going to have a baby, and Joseph and her, they've been going steady, but they haven't been having sex because they're not married. And let's just say this while we're here, the only time to have sex is after you get married to the person with whom you have sex. Amen? Now, wait a minute. This is a Christian teaching. Sex is good only after marriage, right? There you go. See, we've got to keep saying these things because the world we live in is saying something else. And if we Christians don't hold the line on, on morality, who's gonna? Hollywood? The government? No. We have to hold the line. Unpopular as it may be, we have to hold the line. It's up to us. And all these young people in the church who are sitting here, hardly paying attention, when you say the word sex, their ears perk up. And we got to tell them that the right time to have sex is after marriage, not before. And so when the pastor says, only have sex after you get married, amen? <laughs> we got to approve the right things, right? Affirm them. So Joseph finds out she's going to have a baby, and they ain't been doing the thing that makes babies. He's upset. 
He's going to get rid of her. An angel comes to him and says, this kid is special. It's from God. She's not lying to you. Marry her anyway. He marries her anyway. And then, on the night that Jesus is born, an angelic host of angels appears to shepherds, keeping watch in the field by night. And they say, somebody special has been born in town. And the shepherds, they rush into town to find the baby. And there's Mary in a town she's never been in, in a stable, temporary quarters, and a bunch of strangers show up to worship her and worship the baby. I mean, this, this is a lot of big stuff going on here. And then you have the wise men who show up a couple years later. And then Herod tries to kill him, and an angel appears and tells him to flee to Egypt. I mean, there's lots of big things going on. There's lots of excitement. There's lots of fanfare. Things are really starting to pop. It's starting to cook. You know, this is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. What's going to happen next? This anticipation, this excitement. And then, boom, 30 years of waiting. 30 years of waiting. 30 years of waiting. Why does there have to be 30 years of waiting? Now, this 30 years is not a brief 30 years. Like all 30 years, it's a full 30 years. (laughs) It's a very long time. Now think of this, here are Mary and Joseph, and and they have lived, and they are living under the shadow of doubt over over their marriage and their pregnancy. People thought that Mary was a loose woman because she's pregnant before she's married. And you say, well, I don't know that that was really what people were thinking. Listen, in John 8, 41, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are not the children of Abraham. And they shoot back at him in John 8, 41. We are not illegitimate children. The authorized version now, I guess I should explain this. When I say authorized version, I mean the King James Bible. That's what I mean when I say that. I know people wonder, like, what is the authorized version? It's the King James Bible. I say authorized version because that's what it's really called. And I hate to be referring to King James all the time, but anyway. The authorized version says in John 8, 41, we be not born of fornication. NIV, we are not illegitimate children. Now the inference is that they're saying that about Jesus. We're not bastards like you. Because this old stigma, this stain is still there. They still think Jesus is an illegitimate son. They still think his mother was playing the harlot. They still think that. Now she has to live with this. She has to live with this. For 30 years, Mary's claim that God's son was in her womb was invalidated and she had to live with the shame of it. Consider this, Mary had done the right thing when the angel comes and says, you're going to have a baby, what does she say about that? Does she say, I don't like this, I don't want any part of it. Is that what she says? No. She says, okay, this is from the Lord, I'm going to take it. Mary does the right thing and she has to live with the shame of doing the right thing. 
I want you to get this in your mind, everybody, especially you young people. Doing the right thing does not always mean people are going to say, yay, woo! Doing the right thing may sometimes cause you to be mocked and laughed at and ridiculed for doing the right thing. There are consequences to your actions, and doing the right thing doesn't always make you the most popular person. But doing the right thing is always right. And God will not let you go unappreciated because there is a last day coming. So for 30 years, Jesus is born, a lot of fanfare, and then 30 years of nothing. You have that one episode where they go down to the temple when he's 12 years old. Then you have 18 more years of nothing, at least that we know of. After 30 years, things changed. In fact, everyone who believed that Jesus was the promised one was unvindicated for 30 years. Remember when they took Jesus to the temple to be circumcised? They went into two people, Anna and Simeon. And these two people, when they see Jesus, they take the baby for Mary, and they say, this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the promised one. And they give a song of praise. And I'm sure people went. Some people probably thought, eh, old Simeon's, he's crazy. There ain't no way that's the one. So his claim was unvalidated. They're unvindicated for 30 years in their claims. They had to wait 30 years. And the question is, why does it take 30 years for Jesus to come out and say, I'm the Messiah? Why does it take 30 years for Jesus to boldly, pro- to boldly proclaim and show who he was? Why does it take 30 years? It took 30 years because Jesus, he held three offices in the world, three positions. Now, Jesus was a prophet, a king, and a priest. Prophet, priest, and king. Most of the time, John Calvin gets the credit for coming up with that trifecta. Prophet, priest, and king. Which of those offices has an age limit on it? Let's see, this is an interesting question. Which of these offices has an age limit? King Josiah became king when he was how old? Eight years old. King Manasseh, the wickedest king Israel ever had until he got saved, became king when he was 12. So you can become a king at any age. There's no age limit for kings. What about prophets? Well, the youngest prophet in the Bible is, guess who? Samuel. Little Samuel. He becomes a prophet. Yeah, there's all kinds of talk about that. But he's a prophet before he's 12 years old. That's acceptable, I think, to most people. A prophet. But there is no priest in the Bible. There's no priest in the Bible who serves as a priest until he's 30 years old. The Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that God gave to Moses and Aaron and said, these are the guys who are going to serve me in the temple. They can't be priests until they're 30 years old. And the question may be, well, Jesus, was he a Levite or not? Was, you know, was he of the tribe of Judah? Was he a tribe of Levi? Well, if you look at Jesus' genealogy, you'll see that Jesus was from Judah, but he's related to the Levitical tribe. Because his cousin is John the Baptist, who's a son of Zacharias, who was a priest. So they're related. It's not out of character. It's not a violation for Christ to serve in this position, in my opinion. 
Jesus is a priest. No one can be a priest in the divinely instituted Levitical priesthood until they were 30 years old. You may say, well, Jesus is not a priest of the Old Covenant. That's true. But the Old Covenant is in effect until when? Until Jesus dies. And then he's the mediator of the New Covenant. So under the Old Covenant, he still has to follow the law. Now, I know they're getting, we're getting into weeds here a little bit, but Jesus could not begin the priestly part of his ministry until he's 30 years of age. You say, well, is that in the Bible? Luke 3.23 says that when Jesus was about 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. And then he begins his public ministry with the same thing that all, Levit- all, the little, all of the Levitical priests began their public ministries with, and that was a ceremonial washing, a.k.a. a baptism. So Jesus Christ, he goes to the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, ceremonially washing away his uncleanness. Ceremonially, because Jesus had no uncleanness, just ceremonially washing him. And then when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? A dove from heaven descends and rests upon Jesus and he's anointed by God the Father to be a priest, to be the one who will take away sins, to be the atoning advocate. Now there's a lesson here in this 30-year gap. After Jesus, after he's baptized, there's no doubt about his, who he is. All the claims are validated. Mary is vindicated. There's a lesson in here about vindication, and it is this. If we are meant to be vindicated, we will be vindicated, but it may take a long time for vindication to come. Now, it's 12, not 12.30, hallelujah, (laughs) 11.30. I'm going to tell you a small story. Um, has everybody ever heard of a guy named Bush, George Walker Bush? He was president of these United States for a long time. And uh, after he was out of office, um, he was being interviewed by Texas Monthly. I think it was Texas Monthly. I, I listened to the interview. And the interviewer said, how do you think history is going to judge your presidency? And Bush kind of says, I don't know. And they said, what do you think about your presidency? He said, well, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> As he would. But what he says is that time will set, time as it passes will reveal if it was a good presidency or not. Because these decisions have long-term effects and consequences. And this is, as you look back, this is why I've said this. I don't know if I can say this without getting in trouble, so I'm not going to say it. So time gives us perspective on things. Was it the right decision? We don't know until much later. It takes time. Vindication comes in time. Now Jesus Christ is our high priest. He came in the world. He begins a high priestly work. And here are a few verses about his high priestly work, and then I'll give you some applications, and then we'll be done. Jesus, as our high priest, his ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. Remember this, my friends. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world, that, that the world through him might be saved. Hebrews 7.17 says that Jesus is a priest forever. In chapter 7, verse 24 of Hebrews, it says that since Jesus lives forever, he is the final and eternal high priest. 
And therefore, this is the best part, Hebrews 7, 25 and 26. Therefore, because Jesus is a priest forever and he's the final eternal high priest, therefore, in light of that, Jesus only is able to save completely, to save completely those who come to God through him because he lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. Jesus is the priest we need. Jesus is the one who saves us. And our need of a high priest, our need of a Savior, is necessary because God is going to judge the world. He's going to judge you and I as individuals. And if you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will face God's judgment. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Now the question may be, how does this help me today? What, what's, what can I take from this right out into the world tomorrow? Here's four things. Number one. <clears throat> the knowledge of Scripture is not enough. Remember the Jews, they were looking for Jesus. They knew where he was going to be born. They knew what he was going to be like, his character, what to expect from him. They knew, but knowledge of the Scripture was not enough. You may be here this morning, and you are able to slay at Bible Jeopardy or Bible Trivia. I remember when I was a kid, I was, in, I was at a youth group. My dad went to, went to this church, and uh, they had a, a youth group thing, and they had Bible Trivia questions. And, you know, I, I had very few skills, but I knew, how, I knew that I'd been in church my whole life. And they're asking questions. I mean, I was killing, killing. Every question I was getting it, killing, 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 killing. In fact, I tried to, because they said, stand up if you know the answer. And, I, and I'd answered so many questions, so many questions, that I went to stand up and a guy behind me jumped on me and held me down. Because I ticked them all off, <laughs> you know. That's a burden they had to bear. <laughs> But I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know the Holy Spirit from any. I didn't know anything. I, wasn't, I was not saved. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Jesus says, who do you guys think I am? And, Jesus said, and Peter says, you're the one. You're the son of God. You have the words of life. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. It takes more than Bible knowledge. The Jews, they knew all. They had the book. They knew the answers, but they missed it. They missed it. Number two, you have a Savior in Jesus today if you will put your faith in Jesus. John 1.12 says this, as meant To as many as receive Him, to them, to those who believe in His name, to them He gives the right to be called the sons of God children of God. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can have salvation. You can have it if you will believe. If you don't believe, you're not going to get it. You must intentionally place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, that is what you do have right now. You do have it. You do have it. Number three. Enduring the shame and sorrow that comes 
from doing right is the common experience of God's people. Even Jesus experiences this. John 1 says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. He rejected him. He rejected him. It's a common experience. You're not alone in that. If you've been trying to do the right thing and you know your mom and dad are giving you a hard time, your brothers and sisters are giving you a hard time, your husband or wife are giving you a hard time about it. Happened to Jesus. Happened to Jesus. Fourth, right now, our knowledge and vision of what God is doing is, is imperfect. Mary and Joseph, they, didn't, they, they knew what God was doing big picture-wise, but how it was going to be flushed out in the details, they did not know. What are we gonna, how is this going to work out? And right now, our vision and knowledge of what God is doing in our lives and the lives of those we love is imperfect. But later on, in the fullness of time, these things will become clear to us in time. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that we see through a glass dimly or darkly. But later on, these things will be made clear to us. Right now, you might be in that 30-year phase where you've done the right thing, you've tried to be, do what God wants you to do, but now you're living for 30 years or a long time wondering, did I do the right thing? <laughs> was, it the, was, it, was it the right thing to follow Jesus? And you're in that 30-year phase. It's going to come to an end, and you'll know. God will vindicate you if you're meant to be vindicated. And I ask the Lord to ask, add his blessing to this sermon.